Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello, and welcome to our latest podcast. And what a treat we've got for you today. Uh, There'll be no messing about because this is just the most amazing uh, subject we've got and and who is it Gary what are we doing why is it so interesting what's so good about it well we're talking about one person today and that person is Graham Donald now a lot of people may not have heard of Graham Donald but it is an exciting tale of daring do and uh, the early days of aviation it is it is uh, but just an outline uh, just so you don't go away after we've said that because I can, I know how uh how uh, easily uh, bored our listeners are. By, uh, he was uh, he's an officer in the Royal Naval Air Service. He was on coastal defence patrols around Britain, 1915. He served aboard HMS Engadine at the Battle of Jutland. He worked on testing and evaluating the Sopwith Camel, the famous First World War Scout, and then posted out to number two wing Royal Naval Air Service, where he was operating in Aegean, often from Imbros, where we've been, uh, Gary, yeah, one, one of our. In fact, that's where you had dysentery or Bain's disease. And there's a famous photograph of you going into or just coming out of a, a latrine. Mm. Do you remember? Yes, I do. I'll put, now, I'll luckily, for... luckily, Graham Donald's from Edinburgh, which means we can just do our normal accents because obviously he's English. Yes, well, everyone from Edinburgh is English, as we know. Uh, now, what is this based on? Oh, oh yes, and, and finally, we ought to mention uh, uh, Graham Donald was uh, involved in the attempt to sink the Gowerburn in January 1918. Gowerburn or Gerben? I never know. Gerben. Gerben. Oh, Gerben. Not Gowerburn. I, th- I, th- I don't know. Oh, <laughs> OK. That was uh, in January 1918, wasn't it? It was, it was. Now... Uh, this this is not based on an interview I did. This is a, an interview based on my old boss, David Lance, and the Imperial War Museum Sound Archive. And he recorded it way back in 1972, which is eight years before I joined the War Museum. Uh, and and you, you, uh, we'll mention it again at the end, but you can listen to the whole interview on the on the War Museum website. If you, uh, if you well, basically I'd type in uh, Graham Donald, Graham spelled G-R-A-H-A-M-E, uh, and Donald spelt Donald. Now uh, let's let's talk. So when when was he born? He was born uh, Graham Donald, not you. Was born in sixth uh, of June, eighteen ninety one. He was the son of a doctor. He was educated at Dulwich College, and there he excelled at rugby. And he played in a team that contained no less than five future internationals for various countries. Uh, he then went to University College, uh, Oxford. Uh, and uh, selected as a prop. What What is a prop? Don't do with rugby. <laughs> and he played for Scotland against Wales and then Scotland against Ireland. So he didn't change sides. He was brilliant uh, in 1914. That was in 1914, wasn't it? It was. And then uh, guess what ended his, his rugby career? Oh, well, presumably the war. Don't yeah, mention it. Put... Don't mention the war. No, we'll not mention it again at all. <laughs> His real interest, though, was aircraft, uh, and that's something that it began really early on in life. Uh, and uh, and 
it, it, this is what's quite amazing to me and you about this, isn't it? You, you wanted to say a bit about this. Well, it, I mean, just bear in mind, we're talking about a man who, um, you know, in 1914, flight had only been around for 11 years. You know, it, it, it wasn't something that had been around years and years and years and developed. It was right at the cusp of technology. And uh, he got involved very, very early, didn't he? He was. He was captivated by the Wright brothers and uh, and, and also the Blerio. I mean, it's f- unbelievable. Just five years before was the crossing of the channel by Blerio and, uh, in 1909. The old joke would be then if he was captivated by the Wright brothers, did they let him go? <laughs> it's a very old joke. Very, very old joke. And one ideally suited to your uh, personality, talents as a comedian. Uh, so... Uh, his interest comes to a bit of a peak in 1910 where he attends the Lanark Aviation Meeting. And that's the last accent we're doing because we, we're going to be respectful to this man uh, in Scotland. Uh, and then during the first Circuit of Britain race, one of its turning points, you know, where the, the aircraft sort of changed course and basically landed for a bit, was at Paisley Racecourse, uh, uh, which was nearby his home in Renfrewshire. And here he met aviation pioneer Samuel Cody. Oh, I, I thought the world of him. I mean, he's deliberately dressed like his cousin Buffalo Bill Cody. Cowboy hat and little beard and moustache. And we expected him to produce a lasso at any moment, but he didn't actually do that. But he's an awfully nice chap. And he had a look at my big uh, big skill model I was making of, a, of an Antoinette monoplane that I rather liked. I remember him saying to looking at my ailerons, balanced the orons, one went down and the other up and he said, no, no, my boy, walk the wings, walk the wings, imitate the birds, my boy, imitate the birds. And at that time, I didn't know that quite soon every plane would have balanced the orons, but still, I liked them because they were easier to make. So there we are. So so Donald Cody was a relative of uh, of uh, Buffalo Bill Cody, uh, and uh, it's all jolly interesting, that, I, I think. Uh, well, it's funny to think of people meeting these You just think of these people as sort of... Sort of stars of green, really, like a made-up individual, but it's a it's no, a real and, human being. And I like about that that, of course, the expert <laughs> Cody has, of course, it completely wrong. Uh, warping the wings is not the way forward, uh, and uh, the balanced ailerons are, are are the way to go. Not that I know what a balanced aileron well, aileron I can't say it, what a balanced aileron is if it bashed me on the head. Um, now his his father was opposed to, to him being involved in flight, wasn't he? But uh, he still... why would that be? Come on, then. Why why do you think that might be? Well, because he's bloody dangerous. I would have thought. And uh, uh, despite his father's opposition, he managed to get a flight with Cody, didn't he? Managed to get up before setting off. Cody did take a trial flight to test the weather from the race course. So I did have a passenger flight with him in nineteen eleven. Terrific thrill, of course, first time in the year, and a good look at the surrounding fields. We didn't go up very high. I don't suppose we went up more than about 300 feet at most and did one wide circuit. We had a look at the weather and had a look at some of the high hills to the south, which were nearly 500 feet high, which seemed quite high in those days. So that that's that that's great stuff. Just just the idea of that first flight with, with Cody. Uh, it, it's amazing to think of. Uh, and then, a bit later, he has a real bit of luck, doesn't he? As far as aviation goes, it's the sort of luck you had early in your life as well, isn't it? <laughs> what was it, Gary? This is, uh, this is what Graham Donald says. My father died in 1913, and I'm afraid he would have stopped me if he'd been alive. But very, very shortly afterwards, I was able to buy from a chap at Brooklands an alleged Berio-type monoplane. Quite a good job built by the Humber Motor people, called the Humber Blerio. And it was a very good copy of the Blerio. Just shortly before the end of 1913, I'd made one or two straight hops, managed to get up and make a landing of sorts in the next field. So hang on a minute. So his father dies and he buys a plane. (laughs) Next day sort of thing, yes. I don't. I'm poor dad. Uh, now, it, it, the, the, I love this concept of just you've got an aeroplane, you don't know how to fly it, and you just take off in. Oh God! But again, you know, let's let's bear in mind here. This is 1913. Flight 
had only been established for 10 years, powered flight. It's, it's a dangerous business, a dangerous business. Well, of course, very few people could train you. You just had to train yourself in those days. I mean, you either taught yourself or you, you broke your neck. <laughs> it was really quite a simple process. Well, flying is quite simple if you do it carefully. But I didn't fly very far, but the fact remains I flew the thing and I did actually have a very mild half-turnover into a hedge and broke my one propeller, which was a pity. That was in the spring of 1914. Now, I think he's lucky to survive some of these things, don't you? Uh, before he had any proper training. But then he's lucky enough to get a bit of outside help, isn't he? And uh, you've got another quote from Donald uh, that, that sort of explains how he got his very first uh, flying training. Major Gordon of the Royal Marine Light Infantry, who was then a member of what was called the RFC Naval Wing, asked me to come through and stay with them at Leven, on the coast of Fife, and he took me up once or twice, very kindly, and highly unofficially took me on one or two passenger flights in a converted short seaplane, which had been converted into a fine old land machine, a short number 42 with dual control. He gave me some dual instruction, unofficially, I enjoyed that tremendously, and it certainly gave me an inkling, a better inkling, into this question of landing a plane. Now, he's making a bit of progress then, wasn't he? He's, he's sort of gradually picking things up. But it's not formal training. This is picking up things up. This is getting a little bit of an idea of what he should be doing. Uh, um, he was pretty confident about it, though, wasn't he? Oh, at that time, I probably thought I was pretty good. <laughs> But um, at this distance, I can assure you, I was kidding myself. <laughs> you really got takes it really takes an appreciable number of hours in the air to learn to fly a plane properly. But uh, I mean, at that time, I was quite capable of taking a plane off the ground and um, assuming there was a reasonable sized field of putting it back into a field again without crashing. Without, we used to say in the old days that any landing you could walk away from was a good one. Now, um, so we're at the point now where where wars approaching isn't it and uh, what, what 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 does donald decide to do it was pretty obvious that there was a war coming along anyway so the matter required some thought because the point is the only thing i was very keen on in those days was flying the war certainly added a spice of fun to it or so we thought in the family we've had a certain amount of naval connections and the naval side appealed to me so what he was going to go for was the Royal Naval Air Service, RNAS. Uh, and, but how to get into that? Uh, well, the first thing he did is he went to Hendon Aerodrome and there, there there were private flying schools that were operating. It was a naval sort of aerodrome as well. And they were operating with the permission of, of the Navy, who basically just wanted as many pilots trained as possible. They weren't that bothered how, how they did. And, he, and uh, Donald enrolls in the Beatty School of Flying in October 1914. Got started training on his dual control right biplane, a genuine American right biplane, twin, driven, twin propellers, chain driven, one of them with a cross chain, which makes most engineers shudder. Completely inherently unstable. Lots of people used to say later on, if you could fly a right biplane, you could fly anything. Well, the fact remains it flew. But it had no front elevator. It was a dead spit to the ones that the Wright brothers first took off at Kitty Hawk in the United States. Speed range, I should think, was about three knots and probably flew, flew level at about 42 knots. Began diving at 43, installed at 39 or 40. So you hadn't really much to play about with. The instrumentation was quite simple. There was a length of uh, fine cords about 18 inches long tied to one of the struts in front of you. You kept your eye on the cords, and the idea being if they went sideways, you were side-slipping, and if the cords suddenly went limp, well, the only thing to do was to sing, Nearer my God to thee. Now, I think that quote gives us an idea of how dangerous it is, doesn't it? Uh, Nearer my God to thee. If only I knew the tune, I'd sing it. But... Uh, Sadly, I'm a bit down on my... That's peers. never stopped you before. But he also gets some experience on, on the Cauldron tractor biplane. Now, I love the quote that follows because I could picture it in my mind's eye because I live in this area. I live in uh, East Fidji, which is... And I often walk through this area, which is uh, by, by the North Circular 
past the North Circular, up onto where, where the the Royal Air Force RAF Museum is, and that's where this incident takes place, which is Hendon, yeah. And this this is uh, well, here we go. We were flying out just a bit beyond the Midland Railway Line, which runs from St Pancras to the north, just beyond the railway line, and the engine cut completely. I found out later the tank was empty, but that wasn't my fault, because I was supposed to be the pupil. So the pilot's name was Jimmy James, grabbed his control stick and immediately put our nose down, because the codron biplane had a gliding angle like a brick, started pointing us straight for the drone, but there was rather a toss-up whether we cleared the railway line. At that moment, there were two express trains coming, one heading for Scotland and the other heading for St Pancras. It was a bit of a toss-up which we'd arrive at. Now, we just managed to jerk her up through the smoke, got over the railway line, and... By the time we reached the field on the other side, she'd stalled at a height of about five or six feet up, and so the codron did its normal neat little dive and turned upside down with its wheels in the air. It was a sort of conventional way for codrons to land. It didn't do much harm to the plane. Then we both tumbled out and undid our belts and tumbled out of our seats, and nobody was any the worse, but uh, it felt quite terrific. That's pretty exciting. Uh... I like that idea. That was the sort of conventional way of a cowdron to land. <laughs> Upside down. <laughs> yeah. And just missing the trains by about five, six feet. God, it, Jesus. I, I remember when I first heard that, when I was, I think, I, I don't know why I was writing a book as the, uh, yeah, Tumult in the Clouds. And I remember listening to that and thinking, wow, that's bloody exciting. But also having the, the presence of mind to take in the fact that there was two express trains, one going north, one going south. I mean, he's taking all that in at a time when, frankly, he's at risk of death. Yeah. It's incredible. Now, uh, during his training, he makes a, a formal approach to join the RNAS. He's, he, he, basically, he's paying for uh, his flying training at this stage. I think they reimburse it, a bit of it. But uh, So, what, so what, what does he say next, Gary? The Admiralty accepted me, passed the medical test and all that, and given working kit and uniform. The only thing I remember was filling in a form marked religion. I wasn't quite sure what to put, so I just wrote Christian. He grinned and said, All His Majesty's officers in His Majesty's Navy are supposed to be that. You're supposed to put down the sect you belong to. I said, Oh yes, and I made it Church of Scotland. So not that religious, Well, it's definitely a sect. (laughs) Oh, hang on, I've just... just... (laughs) <laughs> just insulted the Church of Scotland. I, just, I take that back. Church, a wonderful body of men and women, I believe you went meant to say. Now, uh, meanwhile, his training's going on at the BT Flying School, uh, and uh, the, the, it's quite. I, I love the test. You're going to tell us now. Uh, go, go, tell us a bit about the training he went through at the BT Flying School. BT had his own methods of training, which were very careful. He didn't want to have his plane crashed. It may sound pretty appalling nowadays, but his system was to give you concentrated dual control until he reckoned you were ready to take your pilot's ticket. And then he turned you loose solo, and you took your ticket on your first solos. I didn't actually go for my pilot's ticket until the 30th of January 1915. You took the plane off, and you made five figures of eight covering the entire airfield. You didn't get very high, probably a matter of 150 feet or so, but it did make sure that you could do both left and right hand turns and keep them more or less round what we called the pylons, which marked the edge of the aerodrome. And after you'd done your five figures of eight, you'd bring her into the centre of the airfield and land her and come to rest within a given distance of a mark, which was the test inspector's oilskin coat. It was really quite a good test. Managed to take it all right. My number is, if I remember rightly, 1,061. Just 61 over the 1,000, which was most annoying. <laughs> His training had been delayed a bit by a smashed-up aircraft. And that's the, the list of pilots. That's the, all the pilots there were at the time. It gives you an idea. It's hundreds of thousands of pilots now, I expect. So he gets his ticket, as they called it, in February 1915. And he's posted as flight sub-lieutenant to East Church Airfield. Uh, isn't that near where your holiday uh, holiday mansion is, Gary? I don't know. Not sure. Oh. Uh, and he w- went more training, this time on the short biplane, and he also uh, the short pusher biplane, I should have said. And he, he almost flew semi-operational flights because while he was learning, they said, well, you might as well keep an eye on the uh, Thames estuary and off the coast looking for submarines and anything suspicious. So what's a uh, pusher, Pete? That's with the engine and the propeller behind. 
That's right. And it sort of pushes you along. A bit like a jet, only a bit more primitive. Uh, although, of course, it wasn't primitive then. It was the most advanced technology. Yeah. And all the time, uh, he's learning navigational skills. Although navigation in those days was a lot looking over the side. Yeah, where am uh, I? That big splashy thing looks like the sea. And that, that other splashy thing must be the Thames. I think that's about the level of it. He then went, uh, the same month, February 15, he was, he was only uh, to East Church a, a, a week or two. He was sent to RNAS Eastbourne. Uh, and there he flew various tractor aircraft. Now, tractor aircraft is where the propeller's at the front. Uh, so what we would expect a propeller aircraft to be, if you see what I mean, uh, to the modern mind. And that pulls and it, the plane along in, presumably, rather than pushes yeah, it. Yeah, I presume so. Yes, yes. That, God, you're so technical. That's very good. And uh, he went on various escort, escort patrols uh, with uh, merchant ships in the channel. Uh, um, and, uh, but nothing much happens. And and that's one of the things about escort. But the, yeah, I was going to say, what well, what could they do at that time? They couldn't do a great deal, could they, from the air? I remember Dad telling me that uh, post boxes were to frighten elephants, and I said, "You what? <laughs> I've never seen an elephant." He says, "That's because the post box is working," <laughs> and I think that's the idea of these patrols, really. Anyway, um, I, I, uh, he then went to uh, where did he go there? Uh, Calshot. He goes, March 1915, so he's, again, not long, he goes to Calshot, uh, where he's learning to fly seaplanes. Now, what are seaplanes, Gary? Well, I'm assuming it's the same as today. These are aircraft that take off and land on the sea. Where they, they have sort of big floats on the, on the bottom, like skis and things. That's precisely right. And this is why I'm going to be uh, Donald this time. And it, this is what he says. Uh, the first problem was to get the things unstuck off the water. Sometimes you were dashed lucky if you got a seaplane off in three miles. If the water was a bit calm, you, you could go half the length of the Solent before you got off. And even then, when you got off, that climb was appalling. The first time you land a seaplane, you don't realise the water is hard. The first time I just said to myself, oh, God, I've overshot the beach. I've landed on concrete. It really is a shock the first time you land on small waves to find out how hard they are. And to give that some context, this is like you, Gary, belly flopping off a, off a diving board. It is. It can be quite painful, can't it? Yes, pain. And splashy. <laughs> so uh, he's then posted... Uh, to his first operational, having learnt to fly seaplanes, he's posted to his first operational seaplane station, and that's in far off Dundee. Now that is a wild, primitive place in Scotland, um, and it's also the heart of Fife D Four Far Country, Gary. <laughs> and a Fife D Four Far's coming to stay in the Fife D Four Far's, um, uh, where he was flying. Uh, Avro and Short seaplane biplanes. And he, he was on submarine patrols. Now, give me an idea of what a submarine patrol is. They're in the North Sea. What's he doing? He's looking for submarines. Yes, because submarines, how could he see them? Well, well from the, the air. On... I mean, again, submarines are pretty primitive at the time. And they, you know, they have to come up quite frequently. Uh, and they could be spotted from the air... And then, you know, destroyers and other uh, shipping in the area could be called in to attack the submarine. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the plane attacking the submarine. They, they would be spotting. Now, while he was at uh, Dundee, he met a real character, a real character. And that's Christopher Draper, known as the Mad Major. It was Christopher Draper, then a flight lieutenant, and who was, in my opinion, undoubtedly the world's finest pilot and remained that for a good many years. A few years later on the Western Front, he used to call him the Mad Major. What he was doing on seaplanes, I don't know, but he could do anything with any sort of plane. His great specialty was he could take a plane through quite a relatively narrow opening, you know, like taking a bicycle through a narrow gateway or something of that sort, and it's not just so easy as it looks. And he used to fly quite regularly through the Tay Bridge, which is not like the Force Bridge. The, the Tay Railway Bridge was built on stone pillars quite reasonably wide apart. But he used to fly through that quite gaily. One day he challenged me to follow him through. So I followed behind him, just a comfortable distance behind. As he went through, it struck me that he had 
that's uh, that's little clearance in his wingtips. <laughs> Very little clearance. It struck me that wasn't enough for me anyway. So I may as well admit it here and now. I functioned at the last moment and just pulled the old... I was in the old short biplane and just pulled her, pulled her right up and went over the bridge and not through. So when we got back to the station, Christopher said, well, you managed it, manage it all right. I had to admit to him, I, I funked it. And he said, what, what? I said, no, I funked it. He said, why? Well, I said, um, what clearance did you have at your wingtips? Oh, he said, about a foot and a half, I should think, each wing. Three feet overall. Well, I said, you know, from a rough guess, I think the old short sea plane's five or six feet wider in span than the Avro, which you were flying. You could go and measure it, but I think I'm right. But if I hadn't funked it, you know, well, I'd have knocked the debris down and you'd have got the plane. <laughs> now, that's a hell of a story, isn't it, Gary? I mean, it, 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 the idea of flying through the Tay Bridge is just madness. And I like the idea of him approaching the bridge thinking, yeah. Oh, why does that? Oh, hang on. <laughs> when I was a bus, ah! when I was a bus driver, I used to approach low bridges, and it'd say, you know, fourteen foot six. I used to drive along thinking, oh, I wonder how tall my bus is. <laughs> <laughs> Similar oh, thing, I suppose. So uh, anyway, that, that's a great story, and and he was famous for it. He also flew under the Thames bridges. He did all sorts of things, and he, I'd say, known as a mad major on the Western Front. Although there's lots of people who know that. Now, uh, Donald is then detached just briefly to the with a, with a, a couple of aircraft to the former RFC station at Montrose, where he's flying flying convent not seaplanes but conventional aeroplanes uh, on more routine patrols over the Firth of Forth and. The Firth of Tay. That's a sploshy thing near Edinburgh and the sploshy thing near Dundee, I think. Um, if those of you are geographically t- challenged. Uh, and he goes on to say this, and this is uh, the point I was making earlier, I think. Coastal patrol work was utterly essential. The enemy knew just as well as our people that these patrols were being carried out. If we'd been carried out... Carrying out no aircraft patrols, I don't know what they might have been up to. They might have come to regard the North Sea as theirs. The mere fact that you're known to be carrying out what looks to be a constant patrol, the actual times you saw the enemy were damn few and far between. It was a game of cat and mouse in the North Sea. Now, there's something else they're trying to intercept. Can you imagine what that might be, Gary? At this stage of the war, pushing into 16. Yeah, it, it's going to be Zeppelins. There were Zeppelins attacks uh, across the country, including Edinburgh, actually. Um, so it would be uh, Zeppelins. Although, to be honest, at that time, it was it was a bit of a fruitless task, wasn't it? Well, and this next, uh, I think he's going to tell us about this. The Zeppelin alarm usually came during the night because Zeppelins only came over in the hours of darkness. It was rather absurd, but not to please everybody. You had to put on a show of going out to chase Zeppelins. I mean, you... About as much chance of in those days when there was no radar, no anything, weren't even any night landing facilities. And as much chance of spotting a zeppelin in the dark as a blind man catching a black cat in the Albert Hall in the dark. You could take off, hoping to goodness the sun would rise before you ran out of petrol, because it was just too bad if you to make a landing. Because we didn't have any night uh, night landing facilities, but I was I was very lucky. The few times I'd go out at night, uh, well, the, the dawn had broken, so you were able to see what you were landing on. Otherwise, it would be a bit awkward. I like I like that description of looking for a black cat, a blind man looking for a black cat in the Albert Hall. Uh, it's um, it's it's uh, it's quite uh, quite a, quite. A, but the the idea of hoping that you'll be able to land in daylight because. There are the, there's there is nothing you can do at night. You can't see the ground. You can't see anything. And I love the understatement of it would have been a bit awkward. <laughs> a bit awkward as in fatal, uh, I expect. Now, by this time, Donald's getting bored. He's not he's getting bored of this life or death uh, existence. And uh he puts in he puts in for sea time and he's posted aboard the seaplane carrier HMS Engadine. Now HMS Engadine is a converted. Uh, she, I mean, she's one of the first aircraft carriers, but she's basically a cross-channel ferry that's been converted. That's that's all she is. 
a uh, big lumpy thing, not exactly a, a, a glamorous thing. Forget all the flat. Uh, but they're not like today. Flat. It's not, you know, in your imagination, you think of an aircraft carrier with a huge flat area that they take off from. It's nothing like that, is it? No, no, they're they're uh, they're, they're basically put put out on cranes. They're stored inside and put out on cranes. I've seen pictures that, with them having the the wings folded up as well. Uh, presumably, that it. that all had to be lowered before you took off. <laughs> ah, spec so. Now, the uh, HMS Engadine was based in the Firth of Forth. That's the sploshy bit near Edinburgh. Near Edinburgh, yeah. Uh, and uh, he he goes there in October 1915. And his job, the the job of the Engadine rather, was to accompany the battle cruiser fleet uh, or squadron uh, under Beatty, Admiral Sir David Beatty. Uh, who's a complete ass? Listen to our Jutland thing, and you'll find out about him. But uh, made his brave, own uniforms. Brave, yeah, brave officer, competent officer, just just an unpleasant person, really. Um, and uh, he would accompany them when they went on a North Sea sweep. And this is again, they sweep into the North Sea uh, because the North Sea is contested water, and they try not to let the Germans get a grip on it because then it would be German water. So they they that's what they're doing. Uh, what what aircraft does she carry, Gary? Uh, it's the um, Schneider cups uh, with single seater, I think. So they've got yeah, they've got two of them and short seaplanes, uh, the ones you mentioned with the wings folded. Yeah, they're the ones uh, where the wings okay. fold up. Sorry, they, I, I, you'd already said you that. can uh, see, you can see that on the internet if anybody's interested. There are lots of pictures of that if you if you touch. They're good fun, aren't they? Yeah. And here's a quote from Donald: Each seaplane was on a trolley, but with its wings folded. They were wheeled out on the aft deck. The aft, ar, oh no, I'm not. <laughs> the, my momentary pirate feelings came out there. The wings were opened out, all the pins put in, wire bracings coupled up, engine got going and warmed up. Meanwhile, the crane swung inboard and the hook was put into a sling on the air, the seaplane's top plane. You hooked on, the crane hove you up a few feet clear of the deck, swung you over the side and lowered you into the water. As soon as your floats touched the water, you got rid of the hook and the chaps aloft got it up out of the way in case it fouled your propeller. Then it was just like any other seaplane takeoff. <laughs> even even just getting the seaplane onto the sea sounds incredibly dangerous. I mean, the amount of things that could go wrong, and particularly if the weather's bad. Now, um, we, we've not got much about this. So it's a lot of routine, but there's one day when it isn't routine, is it? And it's the 31st of May, 1916. What, what, what happens then? Why, why does that date stick in my mind, uh, Gary? I have no idea. I don't know. The it's the Battle of Jutland, Pete, which uh, I think is just by Lowestoft, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I always said it was... I wanted to do a battlefield tour based... <laughs> Off of Jutland, and pay people get lots of people to pay money to come to Southwell Pier, which is a very small pier. And we'd stand at the end, and I'd point in my usual fashion and say, "Over those waves," <laughs> and point vaguely. You know that wave where you I don't know really the know wave, where yeah. is. Anyway, um, now Donald was nearly a key player in this battle, wasn't he? He was nearly the man who was sent off. Nearly the man who was nearly. sent off. Ne- nearly, Gary. Is that nearly? Nearly, but then fate intervenes, doesn't it? Perfectly certain that David Beatty knew very well where the enemy fleet was, but what he wanted to know is how many ships there were and what could have consisted of details of what was just over the horizon there. And all we had to do was to go and find out and report back. And it happened to be my very good luck to be my turn purely on the rotor to, to carry out that very interesting flight. The word came to investigate with aircraft just over the horizon in the direction of Schleswig-Holstein, sitting in the cockpit waiting for instructions, engine warming up, or clad in flying gear, chain hooked on, ready to hoist. We'd have been in the water in, in the way in about a minute and a half. And just as I got my engine nicely warmed up, unfortunately, a senior flying officer, Flight Lieutenant Rutland, appeared, waved me down, and my observer, and told me that... Uh, he got the captain's sanction that he was to go. So my old short seaplane H three five nine away she went, but without us. So his plane, <laughs> but not him. 
Yeah, and so Lieutenant Rutland is incredibly famous, and his nickname was Rutland of Jutland. Oh, that's you... no. <laughs> uh, so it could have been Donald of Jutland. Um... No, but that's why they sent Rutland. Somebody went up there and said, wouldn't it be good if we send Rutland out, because this is Jutland. Oh, dear. I, l- I love it when uh, you may or may not know that Jut- that Rutland had a, a somewhat checkered career in the Second World War. Where he was uh, accused... Pr- I don't know whether it was justly or unjustly of being a Japanese spy. (laughs) (laughs) I just like, but it's just wonderful to uh, when when, uh, in the interview, uh, David Land says, "Perhaps you'd like to comment on uh, Rutland's personality, what kind of a fellow he was, and uh, you know, just generally about him." Uh, Donald says, "No." (laughs) 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 Oh, touch of uh, anyway. the weather. Uh, why doesn't he take off later? Why? 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 Why do they just send one plane off? Why? Why? Why, why does this matter? Well, it makes it impossible for more flights. Bear in mind when we're talking about here, Peter. What makes it impossible for more flights? The weather. What? The weather. The, you know, with, bear in mind when we're talking about it's it's difficult enough nowadays to to take off and land in bad weather. Can you imagine doing it then? Yeah, the, the waves just, you can't get any speed. Yeah, you can't so get any you speed, can't you can't get up. And uh, it makes landing impossible as well. So even if you're up, you know, you've got to think about getting down. Or Dan. Or Dan, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, so so that, uh, his next point. Uh, so so that, that <laughs> it's all a bit of a nothing. If you listen to uh, the tapes at the War Museum, which I do urge you to, there's lots of exciting stuff because the Engadine's involved in trying to rescue HMS Warrior, and he gives a good account of that. But that's not really the subject of our podcast. So I just say there's lots in the interview that isn't in this podcast. So it's it's a great interview. The War Museum did brilliantly to interview him. Now, he next gets posted to uh, RNAS Killing Home on the Humber Estuary. So, so he must have done something wrong to go near Hull. <laughs> Absolutely. Can you imagine? You go, Where am I going? Where am I going? Hull. Hull. Oh. <laughs> Hull. Hull, yeah. Get your cool. Aren't they Yorkshiremen around there? They are Yorkshiremen. And that must be East Yorkshiremen, which are particularly difficult, I believe. Yeah. Although I often think of it as Humberside. Do you? <laughs> Have you told Yorkshire people? No, I don't. <laughs> um, so, uh, so what's he doing there, Gary? Well, it's, it, it, as we mentioned, he's got uh, experience on the single seat assault with Schneider seaplanes. So he's that's from uh, that's from when he was on the yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so he sent out to carry a evaluation test on the new SOP with Camel, uh, which is from April to July nineteen seventeen. Oh wow! Well, let's let that. I mean, that's the new. Uh, yeah, and most uh, people would hope. have heard of the Sopwith Camel. It's, it's probably now, the a... most famous aircraft of the period. Arguably. And second only to the SE five A, which was much better. Anyway, this is what he says. He disagrees with me. Unbelievable! It's as if he knows what he's talking about, whereas I don't. He says this: the Sopwith Camel was so quick to control. Far, far quicker than the Schneider Cup top with. Quick to turn, good performance, wonderful manoeuvrability. For a dogfight, the perfect machine. Twin machine guns, sop with cowper interrupter gear, with the guns firing through the propeller. He means through the arc of the propeller. Yeah, not <laughs> through the propeller, yeah. All the, weight concentra- all the weights concentrated very close together. Engine, guns, pilot, tank. Everything very close and a very small tail fin and rudder which didn't slow down your movement. She wasn't a machine that you wanted to be ham-handed with, but in my opinion, she was and still is the finest fighter ever designed by the hand of man. Well, controversial, um, but uh, that's a respected viewpoint of a pilot of the time. He he flew Uh, it. And and also he's right about in a dogfight. It was brilliant because of the fast turn rate of turn. Uh, the SC five is more a killing machine for diving down and zooming back up. So that's interesting. Different perspectives, and that's a perspective of a man who actually flew the bloody thing, or he sometimes flew it, as we'll find out. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, so what happens to him next? Where where are we, where are we going next with him? Well, he's sent out to the Aegean, uh, where by this time I should we've not been following his rank, but he's flight commander. So he's doing Graham well, Donald, doing well. He's doing well. And he's initially in command of two flights of Sopwith Canals that are based at Imbros. Uh, later on, they move all over the bloody place in the Aegean. Uh, now, he has 
one experience in a, a camel that's utterly unbelievable. Now, sadly, in the interview, uh, David Lance didn't record this, and the the, uh, the this tale was because uh, otherwise we'd let you hear it in his own words. But so this is just attached to the transcript, uh, and it's only attached to the transcript that's actually in the war museum not the one that's on online so uh so uh gary just tell us this amazing story i just completed a short patrol and was approaching our airfield at a height of slightly over six thousand feet i decided to try a new maneuver which might prove useful in combat bearing in mind that a full loop is utterly useless in a fight the new maneuver was to be a half loop roll off the top and proceed in the opposite direction I pulled her up into a neat half loop and was going slightly too slowly and tended to hang upside down. With an efficient safety belt, no trouble at all. But our standard belt was 100% non-safe. Mine simply stretched a little and I dived clean through it out of the cockpit. Ah! Hang on a minute, he's at 6,000 feet. Nothing but air between me and the ground. An embarrassing moment. The first. I just, I just want to pause you. A minute. <laughs> he's fell and out of back, the plane, and he's up. The aircraft's upside down. He's left the aircraft. Yeah, and he's now tumbling. He's down. not in the plane. And he says, "Say it again for me, Gary." An embarrassing moment. Just unbelievable. Sorry to interrupt you, Gary. Carry on. The first 2,000 feet passed very quickly and terra firma looked damnably firmer. I couldn't see my faithful little camel, but I could hear her close on my heels. And suddenly, there she was, and I fell or sprawled back on. Fortunately, she was a biplane, so hanging on the top saved me from slithering straight through the propeller glistening beautifully in the evening sunshine at 1,200 revs per minute. Now, so that means he's, he's the, the aeroplane's tumbled down with him and he's managed to fall onto and grab the top wing. But I love that. The, the propeller glistening beautifully. <laughs> Sorry. So what happens next, Gary? I'm all agog. I'm all agog. Hanging on with my left hand, with one foot hooked into the cockpit, I managed to reach down with my right hand and pulled the control stick backwards to pull her gently out of her dive, now at 140 to 150 miles per hour. And noisy. This was fatal. <laughs> she immediately went into a most appalling spin, and an inverted spin at that, the kind whose centrifugal force sends you outwards. Even with two hands on the top plane, I was slipping with about 2,500 feet left. So the aircraft's upside down and spinning, which means it's sort of rotating around its own axis. Axis, not axis. Uh, and he's clinging. <laughs> <laughs> Remembering in time that everything was inverted, I just managed to get my right foot on the control stick and pushed it hard forwards. The camel stopped spinning in half a turn and went into a smooth glide, but upside down. It was now easy to reach down, or up, one hand and pull her gently down and round into a normal glide. I was now down to about 800 feet. An unusually good landing was made without one note of applause due to the total absence of spectators. Every man jack of the squadron having disappeared. Most mysterious. In a minute or so, heads began to appear all over the place popping up like bunny rabbits from every hole. What had happened was that when you press the sole of your foot on a control stick, you also press both triggers. <laughs> and the entire landscape had been liberally sprinkled with nickel-plated confetti, and very wisely, all the ground crews had dived as one man for every available ditch. That is just the most... I love the idea of bullets spraying all across the aircraft. Can, across can the we just the revisit this for a second? So he's upside down. He falls out of the aircraft at 6,000 feet. He's falling. The aircraft falls with him. Effectively arrives... it's coming round in yeah, the loop. It's coming round in, in the loop. loop. Effectively arrives underneath him. He grabs hold of it. 
luckily missing the propeller. He then starts to control it with his foot. Puts it into a spin. Puts it into a spin. Realises that it's an inverted spin. So he corrects that. Does the best landing and then wonders why nobody's applauding. And it's because he's basically shot them on the way down. If you put that in a movie script, nobody would believe it. You'd just say, that's bollocks, wouldn't you? That is incredible. (laughs) What a man. Uh, 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 Unbelievable story. Now, the next thing we're going to... We're going to go on to uh, uh, another exciting incident. Uh, This is on the 17th of January, 1918. And two camels, one's uh, piloted by our hero, Graham Donald, the other by Jeff Winker. And they're escorting a DH-9. That's a sort of... Well, it's normally a bomber, a sort of bomber. That's a de Havilland 9, isn't it? That's it. You know these things, don't you? And he's on a a minefield reconnaissance. And so here he goes. Our practice was to send one camel over low down with a DH-9, and the other watched them from about 6,000 to 7,000 feet. As everybody preferred the upper berth, Winker and I tossed for it, and I won. Our selected area was just off Suvla Bay and Anzac Cove, and I could see our two planes, that's the uh, the Camel and the DH-9, zigzagging across the minefield. Also, watching our planes, with a keen degree of interest, were the occupants of a biggish German, oh dear, Friedrichshafen two-seater. That's why you gave it Well done. The observer was staring at them so eagerly through his binoculars that he never noticed my sop with camel sitting about 35 yards behind them, behind him, which was an error. <laughs> I love this understatement. Absurd as it sounds, I simply hadn't the heart to obey the advice of the famous Wild West lawman Wyatt Earp to shoot them when they ain't looking, preferably in the back. Sorry, so Wyatt, Wyatt Earp was from Cornwall. Sorry to interrupt. Yep. Yes, he was. So I just let go about 15 or 20 rounds in the air, well behind them. That's as a warning. I, I, that's ridiculous. Never in my life have I seen such a rapid reaction. The binoculars flew out of their own owner's hands, obviously breaking their strap, and fell in the general direction of the Aegean. While the pilot must have rammed his control hard forward as the plane practically folded into an 80-degree dive. This was also an error. (laughs) A straight dive with a camel behind you is always an error. It then became purely a matter of following the enemy plane down from about 6,000 feet, keeping right behind his fin and rudder, thereby laying a dead stymie for his rear gunner. He means the ru- the the, uh, the rudder fin and thing would be in the in way. In the way. Yeah, couldn't shoot. In this position, the rear gunner cannot, oh, he's just going to say that, cannot hit the head of the camel pilot without shooting his own tail off. If only I'd left it to him to explain. I'm an idiot. The closest he can get is within about 18 inches of the top of your head, which is as good as a mile. In the meantime, the Friedrich Schaffen was collecting 750 rounds per minute from each of the Cabell's twin Vickers guns. A bit of touch of the uh, Jeremy Clarkson's there. Through and around its fuselage. Halfway down, about 3,500 feet, it was over. It went into a vertical dive then slowly on its back and various bits and pieces began to fall off. I was too busy levelling out very, very gently to see it actually strike the water. However, from 1,000 feet, I could see the wreckage still floating. Now, I looked this up in The Sky There Battlefield 2 by Trevor Henshaw, our chum Trevor, you know Trev. And uh, it's duly there, right date. So it's, it's, there it is on the uh, 17th of January, 1918. It, he says Suda Bay. Uh, I'm not sure where Suda Bay is, uh, but that could be a. a, a, a it, that's why it's always interesting to check oral history. Uh, I make no comment on that. But what a what an exciting uh, tale! He was a bloody lunatic to uh, to warn them there. Abs- uh, uh, that wouldn't go well on the Western Front. On the Western Front, the idea was definitely kill uh, before before you warn them. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, With it, and then, it, it's least risk to yourself as possible. And so giving them a warning increases the risk. Of course it does. Now, a couple of days later, just two days later, comes the greatest excitement of the Battle of Imbros. Uh, that's on the 19th of January, 1918. Now, what happens? Give us an outline of what happens. You can never go, will you? What happens here? What's what's the outline? Well, the Gerben and the Bres, uh, Breslau sail at about 4pm on the 19th of January, and, and they're launched into an attack on Imbros. And uh, most people think that, you know, if you go to Gallipoli, that uh, uh, the battles of Gallipoli are 1915. But but this took place in 1918. And actually, if you visit, I think uh, one of the cemeteries has a number of um, uh, gravestones, W Beach, from that period. Um, so so it's interesting to think it didn't just end in, in uh, 1915. So the, the two ships launch an attack on Imbros itself, and they're, they're shelling the, the shore installations. And they sink the monitors, Raglan and the M28. And there are there, there are some fatalities as a result. I've certainly seen the graves from the Raglan. There's quite a few of them at yeah, W Beach on uh, yeah. on uh, on uh, Hellas. Uh, so then they break off the engagement uh, and and head off for Mudros. Now I'm not quite sure it's four in the morning or four in the afternoon. And 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 but but by eight thirty the Breslau's hit a, another a mine, which is and that causes severe damage. Uh, the Garben had already hit a mine that had done no damage at all, but the, now the Breslau is severely damaged. And they begin to try and make their way home. And this is sort of like the opportunity the RNAS pilots have been waiting for. That's why I'm beginning to think it's four o'clock in the morning. It seems much more sensible. I think uh, I think I've made a mistake with putting PM. Um, do you think the uh, Do you think the pilots are at peak readiness? Uh, the RNAS pilots and Donald, uh, Gary. No, and Donald Donald is actually going to explain why not. Why? What could it, What could stop a, a pilot from being at peak readiness? Let's see, shall we? Quite a number of chaps were going home and leaving. We had a very successful party, which lasted until 1 or 2 a.m. And to everybody's horror, we were wakened up in the very early hours of the morning with the shouts of the Gobins out, the Gobins out. You lie about 25 stricken miles away from where the Gobin was. So it was just a matter of all available planes, the bombers which were already bombed up, and of course the Imbros bombers were ready to attack with bombs got underway. It was a case of everybody for himself. Booze. Booze, Gary. So they're all hungover, basically. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, uh, the, the, the RFC and the RNAS aircraft are all attacking uh, uh, the the uh, the, um, the Goban and the Breslau. Uh, there's aircraft from all over. Some are from Mudros, some are from Imbros. They're from the Ark Royal uh, and the Empress. They're, they're, uh, they're aircraft carriers. carriers, aren't they? Yeah. And Donald eventually gets a sop with Camel and joins in the attack. And you're going to take up the story because uh, uh, here. With no German fighters appearing, just for the hell of it, we attacked with machine guns pelting everything we could at them. Merely as a gesture, but it was quite funny to see machine gun bullets bouncing off conning towers. It couldn't do much harm unless you could shoot somebody through a slit. Anything you could do to rattle them, raking the decks with tracer. The Breslau hit several mines and began to sink most convincingly. So we concentrated on the Gerben, and she hit at least two. Being a heavier armoured ship, she didn't show such signs of distress, but she slowed down and began to settle a bit lower in the water. By the time they reached the mouth of the Dardanelles, the Gerben was going slowly and the Breslau had sunk. It wasn't our bombs that had sunk her, but we bombed her onto the minefield, so we claimed it as an RNAS victory. Hooray! Uh, so, uh, poor old Breza. A lot of people were killed on that ship, actually, and, uh, so uh, perhaps less hooray from me. Uh, so they're, they're, they're all, they're, they're, there's destroyers after them as well, and uh, the, the Goulburn now ran into another mine uh, minefield. Uh, just as she turns, you know where you turn to enter the, the Dardanelles Strait? She hits another mine, and she takes on a really bad list to port, uh, some 15 degrees over to port, which is a lot for a, a shippy thing. Uh, and, and you're going to take up the story as she, as she goes on. We followed the Gerben up the straits. Machines were going backward forwards from Mudros and Lemnos, loading up with every bomb they could get, coming back over and pelting away. The Gerben was going slower and slower, and by the time she was halfway up from Cape Hellas to Chanak, we thought she was just on the verge of sinking. The only thing they could do, and they did it brilliantly, 
was beach her as fast as they could at Nagara Point, which is just at the Hellespont on a very suitable sloping beach, which allowed her to sit there without sinking, absolutely stuck solid. Now, again, we've been there, haven't we? We have uh, because uh, you could see it from one of the hotels we stay at, uh, where we were on that breakfast balcony. You can look across George and Nagara Park. And when we go, we climb up to what they call the German signal station, which we call a German battery. You're exactly opposite the Nagara Point. Uh, it, 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 there's a naval station there now. Uh, for the next few days, they continue to launch attacks on the Gorbun. She she can't get off, and and she's got to be, uh, and she's vulnerable. But but. It's at the centre of the Turkish defences as well, the air defences. And this is what uh, Donald says. They brought up their fighter squadrons and the air was stiff with German fighters. They were attacking our bombers. We, we got several shot down. The camel's job was to hang around the bombers and keep the fighters off. And I think we got quite a few of them down. A small Halberstadt fighter climbed up to attack Ralph's... I wonder if that's Rafe. Ralph Sawley and Smithy in their DH4 at an unbelievably steep angle. He was right below me, so I put my old camel into a vertical dive and practically fell on top of him with both Vickers machine guns going. He went down in a queer sort of tumbling spin, but nobody saw him crash. It was one long, confused melee of a dogfight above the uh, Dardanelles. Just one hell of a crowd of aircraft and anti-aircraft shells. Wow. Uh, and uh, that all happened in places we know. I, 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 it does not bring it home to you when you, you could just picture the scene. Uh, the wounded battlecruiser being attacked by uh, Allied seaplanes. Now, in the interview, it's hilarious because David Lance keeps asking him, why didn't they sink the government? Why didn't they, why didn't they destroy her? Why do you think? Besides all the German uh, German and Turkish, uh, they always understate the Turkish element, uh, opposition. Why Why else do you think that the, the bombers couldn't sink or severely or blow up the, the Gerben, Gary? What could stop them? The Gerben itself, I should imagine. Uh, and the fact that it was beached, it, it was... Um... And what other thing? I have what, what do you no idea. Think... What do you think the bomb load would be? Oh, it'd be terrible. And, and also, uh, you know, actually hitting the thing from from that height and uh, whilst you're involved in that sort of uh, uh, action. And even if you do hit it, if it's you, gonna, you've got a six, six pound bomb, 65, what's it going to do? 60, 65 pound bomb. Oh, 65 a, pound. 112 pound bomb. It's not going to do much damage to an armour. Well, you mentioned earlier on the, the armour that it's had. It's hit a couple of mines, and, and whilst it's it's had to beach, it's not sunk. So, yeah, that's, that's a good point. But David never gets this, so he keeps asking, why didn't you sink it? You can hear Donald well, get I didn't more get more it. I didn't get it. Well, you're lovable, though. Now, the, so the government stays stranded there until the 26th of January, so it's there about a week. Uh, and then it's pulled off uh, and towed back into the Black Sea by the battleship Turgut Rice. Um, now, so what happens to, 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 well, that's the big excitement. Now, in 1918, Donald's operating from a string of airfields all over the place. Stavros, Mudros, Lemnos, and there, nice change, Mytilene, that makes it, oh no, it's also known as Lesbos, <laughs> and Thassos. <laughs> They're not very imaginative with their names for places, are they? No. Uh, they haven't got one called Chaos, sir. They're all Greek to me. <laughs> Very good, Gary. Very good. Uh, and just two, two uh, there's a couple of highlights uh, stand up. Well, there's one. Uh, um, one thing to remember is from the 1st of April, 1918, he's not in the RNAS anymore. What's he in, Gary? Something far easier to spell and say. The RAF. The Royal Air Force. Fine body of men and women. Now, uh, the next, we've got one more big exciting tale to tell, and that's uh, September 1918. Uh, uh, the Bulgarians are finally in retreat. We always say we made them retreat, but more likely the French and Serbians had uh, broken through, and the, the Bulgarians were in a, a state of uh, pell-mell retreat, and they were being followed up by the British, the French, and the Serbians. And this is, uh, this is Donald explaining his role, and it's a murderous role too. No warning this time. Bulgarian army was in full retreat. We didn't know they were going to collapse so quickly, but at last the British army got them on the move. They were retreating through the Rupel Pass, and I'm afraid we caught the poor 
Blaters very much on the hop because it was a been a key pass. They'd held it through the entire war, and we could do nothing about it. But once they started to retreat through it, they were in a horrible trap because they, we were shooting them up from low down. Well, it was simply a matter of chasing after motor cars, transport lorries, bullock wagons, all the transport they had, marching troops in a narrow valley, and they'd no option but to scramble up a steep side on the ones on the left-hand side or fall over a cliff on the right, and I'm afraid they were doing both. And uh, it, it wasn't at all a pleasant sight. Nobody enjoyed it, but the fact remains you get an army like that because Johnny Volga was a good fighter. You got him on the run. You had to keep him on the run. And uh, it was very largely done with the shot with camels, shooting him up like mad from low down. Can you just imagine that, Gary? The, the, the poor old Bulgarians trapped on a narrow road with a sort of cliff on one side going up and a cliff on the other side going down. And nowhere to hide, really. Extremely nowhere. vulnerable oh. to attack from the air. And what happens if, if you if you hit a, a bullock wagon and you kill the bullocks? What It blocks the road, doesn't it? So they can't get anywhere. It's uh, It's a terrible thing. Now that's really the end of uh, our, our, our time for from in the in the First World War, the Great War. Uh, but he goes on to a distinguished career, doesn't he? Could you sketch it in a bit, Gary? Uh, he, he's a regular RAF officer by, by the end of the war, and just give us some idea of what he does. Yeah, he he, he gets involved in some exciting stuff. He leads a dawn raid on the Bolshevik naval base at Kronstadt during the uh, Baltic campaign and the Russian Civil War. You don't hear much about that, do you? No. And, and, and this is one thing about the interview programme. It's not covered because in those days, our interviews would just pick on one sliver of a career. And, of course, that would be... We'd super like to hear about that now, wouldn't we? We would. Uh, what, what, what else does he do? Well, he, he commands a, a, a number of squadrons as well as stints on the directing staff at the RAF Staff College Andover in 1924, I think that was. He commands the School of Naval Cooperation... Oh, that's an interesting name. Uh, a number one Indian wing station at Kohat, India. I bet that was interesting because those frontier campaigns, uh, they used to have something called a ghoulie chip when they, they flew because they were bombing poor defenceless villages. And if you actually, your aircraft ran out of fuel and crashed, you were in a lot of trouble. They used to chop your ghoulies off. So they had a ghoulie chip and you got money if you handed the pilot back unharmed. So that's. In the last two minutes, you mentioned bullocks and ghoulies. Bullocks to you as well. Now, during the Second World War, he had a... a, a That's less exciting. Yeah, he, was, he had a series of staff posts as uh, Director General uh, of Organisation and then uh, Deputy Air Member for Supply and Organisation and finally Commander of Maintenance Command in 1942 before retiring in 1947. What a career, eh? Now, those those last posts were, would sound boring. I'd have liked to have heard about them because although they sound boring, they're bloody important, aren't they? Staff positions at a high level. He had a very important career. So that uh, that is Graham Donald for you. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. We, we, I mean, you, you wanted to say something about just how you felt about hearing the man himself and about... about what happened to him? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really intriguing, isn't it, to, to realise that he was interviewed in 1972, as you say, and, you know, that's within my lifetime. I was, as I said, 10 years old. And the, the fact that, you know, I used to go to Edinburgh as a child with my family, I could have walked past this man on Prince's Street, you know, and not known it. I think it's incredible. And, and hearing the man's voice, I think we should do more of this, Pete, because actually hearing the people themselves talking about their experiences adds a certain dimension and when I was reading the notes uh, earlier in the week I couldn't wait to learn a bit more about uh, Graham Donald um, do you know for example how long he lived Pete do you know when he died uh, no I didn't look it up uh, but it's on the internet sorry I, that is entirely my fault I should have looked that up uh, he was certainly uh, I think he lived to about 1984 I think I'll, uh, I'll put you on the spot there because you did me with uh, why they couldn't sink the Gerben I did do that. Yeah, I did do just that. mentioning I, I, it. I, I apologise unreservedly, Gary. I, I'd like to say uh, that uh, it's interesting also that David re David Lance recorded that in 1972, which is 50 years ago, uh, and it was only sort of 54 years before that. It's we're almost as far from when we that yeah. was recorded yeah. as it was. I mean, 54 years from uh, from 1972, uh, 50 years from 1972 is 1922, which is only four years after. 
the uh, the instance, the most exciting instance. And that brings it home to you. If you want to hear more, go to the Imperial War Museum website and uh, type in Graham Donald and uh, and IWM. You should, you should be able to find it there. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Uh, we've loved doing this. And thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. No, thank and, you, Peter. Uh, thank you. No, thank, thank you. Thank, thank you, Gary. Thank you for everything. No, you thank do. you. Thank you. And thank you, Matt. No, thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gaz. Gaz! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?